Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Colossians 2, 9-15 For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by flesh was put off when Christ, when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with, with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jumoke. And uh, good morning, everyone. And a special welcome to uh, those who are with us here for the first time, or we've not seen you in a while. Apologies for the, um, the heat and uh, just the dis general discomfort. Uh, we're trying to move out. Um, today is a special day, as we know. Um, Easter. And, um, you know, it reminds me of something about how we are tied. You know, human, humanity is tied. We are tied. The, our, my faith is tied to someone else's faith in many ways. What do I mean by that? I mean, for instance, one way you can think about it is if you're a church and you rent a, a hotel um, 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 hall, your faith is tied to the quick response of the maintenance team. Uh, when they take light on you, I want to put on the gen. You know, that's what happens. Um, if I have to apply this a little bit more personally, when I was young, I always used to wonder why God didn't make me, I, I mean, my parents were good, but I always wanted to be Bill Cosby's child. <laughs> now, for some of you that don't know who Bill Cosby is, in the 80s, there was probably no bigger star on TV than Bill Cosby, right? He was, they used to call him America's dad, right? But I wanted him to be my own dad. Uh, he was running a show that was, it was called the, uh, the Cosby Show. It was about his family. He was a doctor, and his wife was a lawyer. But outside of that, Bill Cosby was, was probably, at the time, the richest black man on earth. You know, forget Dan Gauthier at that time. It was Bill Cosby. And I wanted him to be my dad. Why do you think I wanted him to be my dad? Well, I figured that if he's the richest black man on earth, and I'm his son, what would that make me? The richest black son, you see. Because his, his faith, my faith, was tied to his own faith. Sometimes we think about this, you can think about it corporately. Um, every four years, we come together and we want to elect our leaders, right? And um, we invest a lot of time, we invest a lot of energy trying to elect the uh, best leader. And so when we vote for the leader of our choice, we hope that they'll be able to come into office. Why? Because we have this thinking that if she or he does well, so would I. Why? Because we understand that the fate of the nation is then tied to the fate of the leader. If this leader does well in office, then most likely this nation will do well as well. And the lesson from that is you have to be careful which leader you choose knowing that our faith is then tied to theirs. Now, can I say this? I don't know who the best leader there has been in any nation, but there are a few, a few candidates who have done very well for their nation. And yet, even with, the, uh, with that having been said, the vast majority of people may have done well, but there will still be a number of people that didn't do well. Even the best leaders cannot guarantee that everyone in the nation will do well, even if they do well. But imagine if you could choose a leader whose faith, when bound up with yours, can guarantee that your faith, you would have the best faith, the best outcome possible. Imagine if we could have that leader. 
so bound up to him or so bound up to her such that their faith will guarantee the best life or the best outcome possible for you. Well, that's exactly what Easter is about. Because even though we have the history of the resurrection, what Paul is trying to show us in this passage is that such a leader has already come. And because that leader is no longer dead, as we sang, he's alive, you can be sure that if you trust in him, he will give you your best life possible. He's the ruler who's conquered the most difficult problem you and I are facing, and he's proved it by coming to life again. So I want us to explore this issue about his Easter, to look at the, both the history and the meaning of Easter. We've titled this uh, Easter sermon, The Conquering Ruler, The Conquering Ruler. And we'll look at it under these three headings. One, the historical fact of the conquest. Two, the embedded story of the conquest. And three, the universal impact of the conquest. The historical fact of the conquest, the embedded story of the conquest, and the universal impact of the conquest. All right, so let's start with the first one. Now, if you go to verse 12, just let's read verse 12 together. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, what's clear in that passage is that the writer of this letter, Paul, assumes that God raised this person he's talking about, Jesus Christ. He assumes that God raised him from the dead. Paul is not giving you any defense. He's just telling you this is what happens. In fact, he's saying we symbolize this historical fact. And, you know, after all, we only symbolize, um, for instance, if uh, Damoe got symbolized her birthday with um, a birthday event, right? What's the thing we assume that we don't ask? We don't say, let's say her birthday was April 28th, right? So this year she invites us to our house, April 28th, we all celebrate. Here's one question we don't go and ask uh, Damoe. We don't say, Damoe, were you born? Like, if she's celebrating a birthday, then she was born, right? In fact, she won't even be there. And so when Paul is saying that we're going to symbolize this thing with baptism, he's assuming already that this thing happened. Now, before we get into the meaning, I, won't, I don't want us to quickly rush away from that because there will be some of us here that will not want to just quickly assume that. We will not accept that the resurrection did happen or could even happen. You may be saying, I know why Christians have to believe that. It's a, must, it's a matter of blind faith. You have to believe it. That's what your religion says. But I'm not a Christian. I'm a rational skeptic. And I don't think it happened. Neither do I think it could happen. Now, in this first point, let me just make, try to make some defenses about this quickly. For the resurrection of Jesus to happen, if you can follow me, we need, let's think of three points. Point A point B and point C, all right? A, B, and C. If it were to happen, we need three things to happen at each of those points. At point A, we need to be sure that Jesus existed and he was alive at some point, right? At point B, we need to be sure that Jesus died. He actually was really dead. And then at point C, we need to prove also that he was alive again. Now, point C and point A are not the same. For instance, if you are... Um, um, a, a Muslim, you have to believe, Muslims will believe that point A and point C are the same. Why? Because point B doesn't exist. Point B appeared to exist, but it actually doesn't exist. So you don't talk about a resurrection where there is no death. Do we understand? So let's think about that. Now, point A and point B, I think if I can prove point B, you already have to assume point A. If he was killed, then that means he existed and he was alive at some point. Let's forget about... Um, historical Christian accounts. Let's just even take, let's take skeptical accounts. So two of the leading New Testament skeptics that have existed in the last maybe three decades, a guy called Marcus Borg and a guy called uh, John Dominic Crossan. Now, these guys don't believe in Christianity. They're actually, they actually want to prove that Christianity is not true. 
Both of them in their writings have come to this conclusion, and they paraphrased it by saying the crucifixion of Jesus is probably the best attested fact in ancient history. Now, these are people that don't believe. But they said the crucifixion of Jesus, in terms of ancient history, is probably the best attested fact. Or take who the person who is the leading New Testament skeptic of today. He's a New Testament scholar, but he's a skeptic. Some of us will have heard him. His name is uh, Bart Ehrman. But before I get to Bart Ehrman, let me quickly say something about historical um, analysis. If you had one record, one independent historical record about an event that happened in ancient history, people will say, well, you know, we're not sure whether it happened or not, but let's think about the credibility of this person. If you have two independent records, now what I mean by ancient records or sources is somebody writes down something. So like Mark, the book of Mark is an independent uh, source of something that happened, all right? Do, are we following? So if you had two, people will say you are on very, on a very strong historical ground, all right? But Ehrman, who I said is leading New Testament scholar, he wrote a book, right? Because there were some people called Christian myth, uh, mythics, and they were starting to deny that Jesus actually existed. Now, remember I said, but Ehrman does not believe. He's, he, was, he grew up as a Christian, and he became a non-Christian. But Ehrman, in his book, Did Jesus Exist? You know how many, how many um, uh, sources he, pr he provides to prove the crucifixion of Jesus? Do you know about many? Not two. Not three. Not four, not five, not six, not seven, eight, not eight, <laughs> not nine, not ten, eleven. <laughs> eleven. Now, this is coming from the leading New Testament skeptic that exists. Now, the crucifixion of Jesus is as close to 100% sure, as we can, we can ever prove of anything that ever happened. Amen. So point A and point B, not by believers, we can actually establish. So but point C is always the sticking point. Point C is always the sticking point. So let's talk a little bit about point C. Now, there are four facts of history that both Christian historians and non-Christian historians, they believe. They believe at least these things happen. They may not believe the conclusions of the beliefs, right? What follows, how you interpret it, but they believe that these facts happen. And what I mean by that is this. For instance, how many of you heard of the, what they call the Bertha controversy? All right, Bertha controversy was a couple of years ago. Um, there was a particular man who sponsored, he was sponsoring, I won't call the name of the man, but he was sponsoring this, um, this um, uh, uh, he, uh, what they call that thing when people, uh, con conspiracy, conspiracy theory about the then, then president of the United States, Barack Obama. And they were basically saying that he was not born in the United States, and he was born a Muslim. All right, so they were sponsoring that. I won't call the leading uh, supporter of, of that thing, right, you know. I won't say that he's the current president of the United States. Surely I won't say that. <laughs> now imagine 200 years after people are reading that history. And let's say they even support, the, by their reading of the history, they believe truly that he was not born in the United States. All right? Here's what people who believe 200 years after that he was not born in the United States, and people who don't believe that he wasn't born in the United States, here's what both of them believe. They believe that Barack Obama existed. You understand? So here are four facts that people believe. They may not they may not take the, the, uh, the same conclusions. They may not say, take the same conclusions after that historical fact, but here's what they believe. One, that the person who was crucified called Jesus Christ was interred in a tomb of a man that was part of the Jewish ruling council called Joseph of Arimathea. Two, that after the tomb was empty, and it was discovered empty by certain women, one of which was, um, in all the accounts that were there, was a woman called Mary Magdalene. Three, that various people shortly after reported that he appeared to them. 
Four, that his original disciples started to believe that God raised him from the dead. Did you get all four? One, he was interred in a tomb after his crucifixion, the tomb of the man called Joseph of Arimathea. Second, that he was, the tomb was discovered to be empty after that, and Mary Magdalene was one of the people that were there. And then three was that he, uh, people claimed that he appeared to them. And then four, that what? That his disciples, original disciples, believed that God raised him from the dead. Now, let's try and defend those two. Because he said, I have a problem with those. I have a problem with how you interpret them. OK, first, let's just take the first two. Now, it's important to know that the names of the people were actually put there. That is, there was a Joseph of Arimathea, and then there was a Mary Magdalene that uh, discovered these things. Now, you say, why is that important? Well, it's really important, because if I said something happened here, um, uh, let's say, in Lecky in the year 2000, right? Let's say I said that uh, Francis uh, and Yemi were into a business, but Francis being the wonderful man that he is, he swindled Yemi in that business. All right? And I, I report that 20 years after. The moment I say Francis swindled Yemi, what are you meant to go and do? You go and check. Especially if either of them is alive or any of their children is alive. The moment if I said, ah, there was a guy in our church, two guys in our church, they swindled each other. One of them swindled one of the other. And I said that 20 years after. Here's what you can do. You can verify. Who are the people? Who can I ask? The moment you put people's names to it, you are making yourself vulnerable. Because if it's a lie, most likely those people will to verify and say that didn't happen. Amen. Now, but let's get to the third one. The third one, and um, um, or, uh, let me say one more thing about that, is don't forget the two people who are called. One was a member of the Jewish ruling council. The Jewish ruling council. It, it is the people who were the custodians of the religion at the time. And now you have these people preach, this man that is preaching another religion that is to come. Why would a member of that ruling council want to protect um, this, this lie that's fabricated by this man? That's one. Two, women at that time, women's testimonies were not admissible in court. That is, why would you go and say that one of the witnesses was a woman when you know that people don't generally believe what women say, except if what? It was the truth. Now, there's a third one. He said that people appear, he appeared to people. And then we say, well, uh, there's a simple explanation for that. Have you not read psychology? Are, are, you not, are you people not smart enough? There's something called hallucinations. Like, if a loved one, you lose a loved one, right? And then many of us have lost loved ones. Many times, people claim that those loved ones appear to them in a dream or in a vision. How many of you have seen ghosts? A ghost? You've seen a ghost? Yeah, I see you. I've seen a ghost. I have seen a ghost. I did once. The funny thing was, it wasn't a loved one, but, but that's another story. But you know what I did to that ghost, right? Uh, some people will say, uh, if you talk to my mom and my sister, they will say that I ran away. But that's not true. I casted the ghost out. I dealt with the ghost. But many people claim to have seen their loved ones after they die. And there is a psychological phenomena attached to that, hallucination. Here's the problem with the hallucination theory about this, though. You know the thing about hallucinations? It usually only has to happen to one person. In other words, if Nanke is hallucinating here, the way we know Nanke is hallucinating and she's seeing something is because Nanke is the only person that is seeing it. Every other person here would be seeing reality, isn't it? It's very rare that two people will be hallucinating at the same time. Very rare. But the historical record shows that not just one, two, but even at some point, 500 people were saw, he appeared to 500 people at the same time. You can't explain that with hallucinations. And then you think also, the person who wrote this letter, you know who wrote this letter? The guy called Paul. This guy was, a, he hated Christians. His zeal was to persecute Christians because he felt they were coming to destroy the old, um, the old covenant religion, which was Judaism. 
he didn't walk with Jesus. So he wasn't like emotionally um, brokenhearted when Jesus was crucified like the other disciples. In fact, he was on the road to go and persecute more Christians when Jesus appeared to him. What was Paul's own motivation for being hallucinated? It doesn't add up. And then the final thing is they said that these disciples eventually believed that Jesus was raised from the dead by God. They'd be like, and now people falsify stuff all the time. They wanted to, um, their leader had gone and they wanted to um, continue the movement. Again, there's a problem with that. How many of us have heard of Boko Haram? It's a stupid question, Abby. When you ask stupid questions, you get stupid looks. You're laughing. You didn't hear what I just said. Ah, I got them. All right. Boko Haram, as far as we know, the original founder was um, killed. Uh, Muhammad Yusuf was killed in 2009. Boko Haram still exists today. Why? Because the fundamental issue of Boko Haram has nothing to do with the leader. It has something, it is all to do with the ideology. So if you kill the leader currently, if the ideology remains, what happens? The movement continues. All you need to do is look for another leader. However, if the movement was intricately tied to the leader itself, the movement will die once the leader is killed. Let me show you something in Acts chapter 5. Um, Acts chapter 5, verse 35. So at this point, the Christian movement is now about, is starting to spread. And a lot of the Jewish ruling council people, are, they are unhappy. And a lot of the leaders are unhappy. And so they bring them to this ruling council. And then one of the people then speaks. One of the guys there is a man called Gamaliel. And Gamaliel says this. In verse 35, then he addressed the Sanhedrin, that's the ruling council. Men of Israel, caref uh, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. What's happening? Anytime there was, there were many what you call messianic movements between the first century before Christ and the first century after Christ. And when the Romans saw these movements were happening, you know what they did? They understood there were messianic movements. That means the movements were tied to the people who they thought was a messiah. So you see, they said Theodos there claimed to be somebody. So he said, this is very easy. What do we need to do to end these movements? They will just get the, uh, the leader. They will crucify the leader. And as he said, all the, 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 um, the followers will scatter. Smite the, uh, the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And then eventually, what did he say? He said it amounted to nothing. If the central focus of a movement is the ideology, if you kill the leader, the movement will continue because you just need to find another leader. But if the central focus of a movement is a person, if you kill the person, the movement will die. If Jesus, as you read all the things that he said, he wasn't coming to just bring a teaching. He was bringing himself. He said, I am God. He said, these things are going to happen. You can only worship through me. No one comes to the Father except me, by me. I forgive sins. If that kind of person dies, the sheep will be scattered. And that's exactly what happened. Immediately he was crucified. His disciples went hiding. Then what happened days after that they started preaching about him? Now, someone would say, I hear those points, but none of them is a slam dunk answer. They're, they're good sounding points. None of them is a slam dunk answer. And I agree with you. But here's what I would say too. Whenever you want to prove whether something is true or not, even if you can't, especially when something happened in the past, as long as you don't have a video, um, Recorder, and even with your video recorders now, nowadays they, all, they can be doctored, isn't it? 
as long as you don't have video recorder, you don't have uh, uh, people exactly there that you can trust that have no agenda, you can never prove it except by building a case and putting things together. And then you say, what is the best explanation of this case? Now, I just give you four. There are many more of all of these things. And when historians dispassionately, you have to look at it dispassionately and say, what is the best explanation for all of these things? There is nothing else that you can point to except that he rose from the dead. You can bring in one theory here and throw another theory here. At best, they are always interacting with one aspect of it. They don't explain exactly what could have happened. The biggest problem, and maybe if you don't believe, here's what the biggest problem most people do, is that from the get-go, they say, we cannot believe that God can raise someone from the dead. So whatever evidence you bring to me, I'm not going to believe that. You know what? The problem is, that is a bad way of doing history. If you come with, uh, if I bring facts and things to you and say, just interpret this as you think it would be. Listen to what people say and all of those things. Don't pre-assume anything from the very beginning. If you don't do that, you're not doing big history. What you're just doing is that you're, you have a certain bias. And so if you preclude that God can raise someone from the dead right from the very beginning, I can understand why you will never come to that conclusion. But understand this. When Paul is writing this letter, he assumes that Jesus rose from the dead, not because it was something that was told to him, but because he knew that it was a fact. And that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. As a matter of fact, Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. Now let's go to the second point. The embedded story of the conquest. The embedded story of conquest. Now I've spoken to you factually, but... As I like to say, I like to see myself as the chief storyteller, uh, chief storytelling officer, CSTO. Yeah, CSTO of this church, all right? So I want to tell you a little bit of a story, a little bit of a story. I'm going to ask you that question again that you guys will look. You can either look at me stupidly or not. How many of you have heard of the guy called Tiger Woods? Tiger Woods, all right. Let's talk about Tiger Woods. Now, um, if you don't know him, um, and you've been in a cave for a long time. Um, let me tell you a little bit. Now, there are five, as far as I'm concerned, I lost sports. There are five um, people who have transcended their sports since the World War, World War II. And that's basically since we've been able to have video and beam it around the world. There are five people. They've been great sports men and women all around, right? Honorable mention, Serena Williams, uh, Rafael Nadal, uh, Maradona. You know, all of these people, Pele, but there are five people who, even if you didn't watch this sport, you started to watch the sport because of them. And even if you didn't watch it because of them, you knew who they were. The five of them were, one, Muhammad Ali, two, Michael Jordan, three, Roger Federer, four, Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt is a miracle. My wife never watches any sport. My wife watched sports from 2008 to 2000 and. When did he retire? 14, 15, because of Usain Bolt. She has never watched athletics after again. <laughs> and then the fifth person was Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods. My sisters and I started watching sport, uh, golf late in the 90s because of Tiger Woods. People started watching because of him. Television revenues for golf. All of those golfers that you see that became rich, they became rich because of Tiger Woods. It's not, they were paying good money before. But because Tiger Woods came in, a lot more people were viewing. And since a lot of people were viewing, there was more money to give, and so there was more money to share around. So they all love Tiger Woods, right? Because this guy, uh, what you see here is wearing a jacket, right? It's because he's won a particular tournament. Now, in golf, there are four major tournaments, four major tournaments. If you want to be somebody, win one of them. If you really want to be somebody, win more than one of them. Tiger Woods was, now, of those four, there are two that are even bigger than the others. One is called the Open or the British Open, and the second one is called the Masters. So whenever you win the Masters, what happens is the previous winner is wearing a green jacket. He now puts on the green jacket for you. Now, the thing about this picture is he was 21, the youngest winner of the Masters ever. I mean, it made many of us, and we, can't, we have to point out, he was the first black person as well. <laughs> 
And so that brought a lot of, you know, frenzy. Now, not only was it that he won it and he was the first black winner. Between the years of 2000 and 2008, no, there are few people that have dominated a sport the way he dominated the sport. I mean, literally, like, people will collapse because they saw him. No, I don't mean physically collapse, but their game will collapse. And golf is not like tennis, where in tennis, you hit and you hit back. You hit, it's not, you know, back and forth. You play your own game, I play my own game. But just the fact that Tiger was there was causing people to tremble. This guy dominated the sport. He was all over. He had so many sponsors as well. He was all over the advertisements. He had a beautiful wife. He was just expecting a kid. His dad was his main inspiration. 2000-2008. Then he fell. He fell. And when I mean he fell, he fell massively. It all started with him being ousted as a philanderer. The guy, you couldn't even count the number of women he had, not even affairs. He was just sleeping with so many women. His wife found out. Eventually, they had a row. He crashed his uh, car into uh, a pole. The whole thing came out. Now, you can imagine somebody that not only has dominated the sport, but had a squeaky clean image, was now ousted for the whole world to see. He entered into rehab. Everybody knew. It made him fall totally. In fact, he lost his marriage. He lost his ranking. He lost his sponsors. He lost his father. He lost his aura. He lost his respect. The worst of it was when he was arrested for being under the influence. Now, at first, they thought it was, it was um, alcohol, but it was actually for painkillers, an overdose of painkillers. I remember when I saw that picture. This picture was just two years ago. I shared it here. I mean, this is a mugshot. They arrested him when the mighty have really fallen. How did that person go from what he was at first to this? In fact, after this, many people said, because after this, he also had back surgery after back surgery after back. He had four back surgeries. At certain points, he couldn't walk again. He told a couple of people he was never sure he could even win a tournament, let alone a major. After the fourth surgery, something called a back fusion, no golfer has played after a back fusion, let alone won a tournament. In fact, let one sports writer to say, the, the golfer we knew as Tiger Woods is now dead. He no longer exists. And yet, despite all the odds, I don't know what you were doing the previous weekend, but I can tell you, people in America, ratings, I've forgotten something opened, another sporting activity opened, but the mayor thought that Tiger Woods was coming back. He was now playing back at the Masters again. Unlike before, like all his other major wins, he had won it 14 times. All his mother, uh, other major wins, he was always leading on the final day. But this time, he was coming from behind. It was almost like the people were hearing the roar of a tiger coming. And there was this frenzy. Like the whole of social media, even people that didn't know, the whole of social media lit up. He started coming, started coming, started coming forth. And as you know it, he won the tournament. Don't clap. So we were here to clap. And of course, I mean, look at that picture. This is a picture of somebody who is all the, all the pain, all the loss erupted in this moment. A 43-year-old with all the odds. As people have said, this is probably the greatest sporting comeback ever in history. 22 years after he won his first one, but with all that had happened. But as I said, you see, he did it differently. Even though he won the Masters as he'd won before, he won the Masters differently. He was a different person. His father was no longer there, but his two children were there. He was not leading from the front, but he came from the back. And as people have said since, because if you knew Tiger between 2000 and 2008, he was a man filled with ego. A lot of people say he's cleaned up himself. He is like a new man, as someone said. Tiger has come back to life 
Except that the tiger that came back to life is not the same tiger that we knew was alive before. He is a new man. You see, most of us love that story. And even though it's a story, it's a, history, it's a real historical fact. But why does that story resonate with us, even if you'd never watch golf? I don't think any of you are going to watch golf after this. And the worst thing about this whole story was how many people started writing, I knew he was going to come back. It's a lie. You didn't know. Nobody knew. I've been seeing all of that. He himself did not believe he was going to come back. So you had you know that he was going to come back. I knew he was going to come back. Hashtag blah, 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 blah something. And trust, obviously, pastors have been using it uh, for their sermons ever since. What kind of pastors use Tiger Woods to preach? Why does that story resonate with us? The story of the comeback kid. Somebody giving a second chance. The story of somebody who was alive, died, and rose again. Why does that story resonate with us? I'll tell you why it resonates with us. Because God who created the universe, who sent Jesus Christ to come alive, show us what it means to be a perfect human being, dies and rises again, the witness of that historical fact is not just to be proven in the historical books. It is deep within us in the stories that we enjoy. We enjoy all of these smaller stories because there is a larger story that they point to. I mean, think about it. With Tiger Woods, and this is what Paul is telling us here when he says that you are dead in your sins and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. The world has big problems. And those problems are both caused internally and externally. Tiger Woods actually caused a lot of his problems internally. He cheated. Nobody, nobody told him to go and cheat. He had a big ego because he was winning. And so Paul can say, you are dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But at the same time, there were things that he couldn't control. He didn't cause the death of his father. He didn't cause the injuries that he didn't, I mean, he didn't knowingly cause the injuries that he had. And so Paul says here that there are principalities and there are powers and authorities. That is external spiritual beings that lure us to sin and would want to wreak havoc, continuous havoc in the world. And very many times, this is the problem with humanity. That is, we follow our worst desires... And we are also having circumstances that push us to do the wrong things. And that is why the world is not as it ought to be. So what did God do? In order to bring us back to fullness, as you see in verse 10, fullness of humanity, God himself became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ, verse 9. And so Jesus showed us what it was to be a true human being, but the human beings killed Jesus but God raised him from the dead. You know why he raised him from the dead? Because death was not part of the original design of what it means to be human. You know what we always think? This child that is born today is going to grow, and eventually when he grows, he will age and he will die. And many times we think this is intricately part of what it means to be human. No. What we are, the most fundamental thing we are meant to do as humans is to worship God. But I want to ask you, if we are meant to worship God forever, how do we do that when there is a time limit and expiration date on our lives? There is something wrong with the system. And Jesus came to show us what true humanity was by saying, look, even though I have died, here I am. I have come back again. Never to die again. The resurrection of Jesus shows us truly what humanity was meant to be. That takes me to one final point. The universal impact of the conquest. There are two things I want to point out here about the meaning of Easter, the theological meaning, if you like, but the meaning that we then apply to our lives. Remember when we spoke about the dying of movements with the death of the leader? Remember that? That movements often die with the death of the leader. Why then do we celebrate the death of Jesus Christ like we did on Good Friday? If the death of a leader is the thing that would bring the end of the movement, why do we as Christians celebrate the death of Jesus Christ? Why do we make, make much of it? Well, the reason is this, because of the resurrection. Let me explain. His death was for sins 
But we would not know that his death was effective for sins if he remained in the tomb. Let me explain again. The disciples, when Jesus died, when they knew he was dead, they were unhappy. They were hiding. It was when they found out that he rose from the dead, they now went back to revisit what his death meant. In other words, the resurrection of the dead is the ultimate, uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the ultimate vindication of his sacrifice on the cross. If you, had the res if you had death without the resurrection, it's not just that the story is incomplete, it is that the story is ineffective. The same writer, Paul, puts it this way. When people are questioning whether people will rise from the dead. He says, if you question that, then you must question the resurrection of Jesus. And if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, not only are we liars, but here's the thing. You are still in your sins. It is the resurrection that gives us the ultimate, if you like, the, the thing that crowns the glory of the cross. If you have a cross without a resurrection, you will have somebody who died because he loved people, but his death was ineffective for them. If somebody tried to kill my wife today and, and they shot, and I came in front of them, and they shot me, and I died, what are you going to say? Oh, how he loved his wife. But what the next thing? You say, how old is she? Let's look for another husband for her. <laughs> Do you understand? The death of Jesus Christ as a vindication for sins. Those sins, those internal uh, motivated sins that we're talking about, God's punishment upon him in our own place is proven or vindicated by the resurrection. In the resurrection, God, in the resurrection of uh, 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 Jesus, Jesus was saying to the powers and to authorities, to sin, to war, to heartbreak, to evil in the world, your time is up. He was saying, I have identified with the suffering of the sufferers. I have been punished for the rebels. I have outwitted the powers of evil at the cross. Why? Because I am here again. Never to die ev evermore. Because of the resurrection, the savior of the world is now the ruler of the world. But there's one more thing. You say, well, all of that is nice. That seems to be a spectacle, a cosmic spectacle. Like, okay, Jesus rose from the dead. That's never happened before. Um, you know, I guess that's news. But I don't understand why that's good news for me. How is it good news? How is it effective for me? But you see, you have to understand that his death and resurrection were specifically for us. Notice what he says. Look at how he keeps putting us in union with Christ. He says, we are buried with him, or we are raised with him, or God made you alive with Christ. That is, if you trust in Christ, if you not just see it as some spectacle, but you say, that death was for me, because of who I am, I've tried to live for my own self. I'm always missing the mark when it comes to God's will. And so I deserve God's justice, but God has put it on Christ. If you believe that about yourself and believe that about Jesus concerning you, then he says, guess what? When Christ died, you died with him. That is, your punishment has been paid for. When he was buried... Your punishment, all your sins were buried there. When he rose again, you also rose again. Look, he points us to two things. He gives us a new life and he gives us a new hope. A new life, what does it mean? Remember he says, God has made you, in verse 13, God has made you alive with Christ. He gives us a brand new life by giving us his spirit. He says, you were once you were once uncircumcised in your flesh. That is, the nature that you have was always bent towards committing sin. But now Christ has circumcised you. In other words, he's saying this. You had a bent to always live as a rebel towards God. But now I am giving you a bent 
to always pleasing God. Our world is broken today because there's a multiplicity of people who are dead in their sins who only want to live for themselves, and they multiply their works together. Jesus is saying, because I have made you alive, because you now have my spirit, you can work for a better world, a new life. What's more, he gives us a new hope. Mm. I want you to think about this. Even though he has given us a new life, now we have the Holy Spirit. Um, most of you never changed physically from the day you were, the ones who are Christians, from the day you became a Christian to, uh, from the day you went a Christian to the day you became a Christian, you didn't change physically. I wouldn't have noticed anything. Forget all those people that say, hey, you say, how are you looking today? You're looking so nice today. Say, it's the glory of God. I don't know where they get that glory of God. Just say it's the glory of, uh, of uh, Max, Max uh, what do you call that? Thing? Max, Fa- Max Factor. All right, and they start calling the glory. Is it Max Factor? Max. There's Max. Uh, it's, a, it's a fusion. Max and Max Factor. You get it. Yeah, I know. Awesome things happen on the pulpit. All right. Um, but there is something you have to think about when Jesus rose from the dead. How many of us have heard the story of Lazarus? Lazarus was a friend of Jesus who died. And Jesus did not, he was told, but he waited almost four days to go and raise him up from the dead. He wanted people to know that he was really dead. And he was brought back to life. When Jesus was resurrected, Jesus was not brought back to life, like Lazarus. When Jesus was resurrected, he did not come back to life like Lazarus. You know what happened? When Jesus resurrected, Jesus went forth into life through the resurrection. What do I mean? Where is Lazarus today? You know, Lazarus came back to, that guy, I feel sorry for that guy. Only one person has died twice, as far as we know, in record. Lazarus came back to life, but he what? He died again. When Jesus came back to life, the Bible says that he mastered death. Death has no mastery over him. He conquered death. In other words, he came back to life, but he will not die again. Why? Because the life that he came forth into was not the same life that he had before. He came forth into true life. What is true life? True life cannot have death with it. If it has death, then it cannot be life. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was as it were there was a wall, a terrible thick wall between what we call this life and the life that is to come. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he went ahead of us and he punched a hole into that wall so that others can come with him. This is the hope of the resurrection. Not that if and when we die that we will come back to life, but we will go forth into eternal life. We will go forth into abundant life. And Jesus proves that by rising from the dead. It is not the thing we are just hoping for, like, could it happen? Could it not happen? It's theoretical. They promised it. It has already happened. Because Jesus rose from the dead into new life. And what he's saying is this. As we are like this, if you're a Christian, you are in Christ. It's a glorious thing. You have new affections. You're able to fellowship with God. You're able to repent of your sins. But by God, you are very frustrated. You're frustrated with that illness. You're frustrated with that sin once again. You're frustrated that you blew your top the other day. You're frustrated that you were not your best person. You're frustrated that you are still conniving. You are frustrated that you are still seeking your own glory. You're frustrated that you are losing many loved ones. They're frustrated that there are so many that are destitute and poor in this world. Is there any hope that all of these things can be repaired? The resurrection says, guaranteed. And so I ask on this Easter morning, because in a multitude like this, there are many different kinds of people. There are some of us who truly have trusted in Christ but need to be strengthened in that faith. Knowing the certainty of what we believe, but also seeking to grow, to grow more and more in that life. 
there are some of us here who have gone to church all our lives and would say, yes, I know what the gospel is, you know. But like at the for the first time, you are feeling a burning in your heart and saying, I don't think I have been walking with Jesus Christ all along. And then there are some of us here also who have come in decidedly not being Christians. And yet, as we hear God's word being preached, we're saying, it seems to be historically true. It seems to resonate with all the stories that I resonate with. And truly, I also feel that burning in my heart. For any of those kinds of people, let's bow our heads now. And let's ask God specifically on this Easter morning, knowing that the issue of the resurrection is not just a spectacle. It's not just something to analyze. It is something that calls for my allegiance. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. Is he your Lord? For is your Lord, is he your Savior? And yes, you may not have all your questions answered. Yes, there may be still many things that are tugging at your heart, resisting. But can I push you to make the biggest decision of your life that you will never regret? And for those of us who call ourselves Christians, can you examine your life? It says that he's circumcised us from the uncircumcision of our flesh, but is your life still being ruled by the flesh? Do you desire a better life? Ask him, call on him. Commit yourself to him. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.